I'm gonna preach a message to you today, part two from Off the Hook, and this is actually uh, how to overcome self-pity. And I'm gonna jump right into this because I actually believe that the Lord showed me that the most significant parts of service are gonna happen at the end today. And I wanna get through this word and allow all of us an opportunity to respond to it. But self-pity is something that we've all felt. You know, it's actually one of the most addictive narcotics that you can ever experience emotionally. And what I mean by that is self-pity feels so good. Am I right? Just, oh, come on. Y'all aren't ready to be honest today. Feeling sorry for yourself feels so good. It's intoxicating. It's like, what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing. You know, oh, are you sure? Yeah, it's just, you know, your love life works out, but mine never works out. You know, you, you always get a promotion. I keep losing my job. Self-pity is, is an addictive narcotic. And we're going to look at the story of Jonah today because I believe God wants to break the spirit of Jonah that's in the body of Christ and prepare us for a next level of revival and go to that next level. You know, um, I think it's funny, though, because when you look at the life of Jonah, you actually see a pattern among prophetic people to get into the realm of self-pity. Now, we're talking about relationships, and it's so important that you understand one of the things that will block a relationship, one of the things that will be a barrier to a relationship is self-pity. It's hard to actually care for someone else when you're consumed with yourself. Okay, can I rewind that? It's impossible to care for someone else when you're consumed with yourself. The more you're consumed with self, the less you can be concerned with someone else. And see, God has called you to have a ministry to other people, but what will block ministry is misery. Oh, y'all aren't ready today. What will block ministry is misery. You could be trapped in your own misery blocking your ministry. And let me just tell you, while Jesus was suffering on the cross, he had enough willpower to look out and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so you're gonna have to learn how to hang on your own cross and still be a dispenser of mercy instead of being consumed by misery. And that's that's what life is. Listen, I love, I love Pastor Eddie and, and Pastor Jocelyn here in NYC. We've got incredible campus pastors. Did you know that, and I'm, I'm going to tell your business, so just stay, stay with me. Every single time that they've ministered to you, they had problems in their own personal life that they were working through too? Does that come as a shocker that their life is not perfect? Did you know every single time that Julie and I have come up and preached fire and ministered to you, we had our own personal pain, but we never let our misery block our ministry. So self-pity is so important to break through because it's an addiction that's worse than alcohol. It's an addiction that's worse than pills because the feeling that it gives you. So let me, let me just, before we jump into Jonah, I was looking at the prophets. I'm going to read you a section from Jeremiah chapter 20, and it's going to help you understand that you are not alone in your, the, the personal pain of self-pity. This is what he says, cursed be the day I was born. This is funny thinking about this being on LED walls across all of our campuses right now, because I guarantee you no preacher has ever read this scripture to you in a service before, because it is the most emo scripture that I could find. Curse be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. This is Jeremiah talking. 
Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, a child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns that the Lord overthrew without, without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? <laughs> This is the great prophet Jeremiah. If this is memorialized in scripture, and this is the behavior of a man of God that was called out of billions of human beings to be elevated to the level of prophetic, that his words would be eternal, eternally recorded in scripture, and he suffered with self-pity, all of you are going to suffer with self-pity. That should make you feel better. That should make you feel better. Because no matter how high God takes you, even when you get all the way to the top, what Jeremiah chapter 20 proves is you are still going to struggle with the temptation to to pity yourself. And I loved self-pity. I would look at other ministries and I would say they're successful because someone believed in them. Somebody sowed into them. Nobody sows into me. Nobody believes in me. Oh, they're successful because their daddy planted that ministry and gave the ministry to me, but I don't have a dad. My dad's dead. They're, oh, their wife actually respects them, but Julie doesn't respect me. Self-pity is something that will produce a misery that blocks your ministry. And God is trying to free you. And you know what it comes down to? I'm just going to tell you the whole point of the sermon before I go even deeper is what it comes down to is self-pity accepts the excuses. Self-pity accepts the excuses and it denies the power of the cross. And what happens is we've got to step into this, into this next era because God wants to bring us into an era of revival. God wants us to bring, bring us into an era. How many of you know that God is not waiting for you to get older for him to use you now? It's not a day, it's a decision. And so some of you think, oh, there's gonna come a day when I finally get used by God. And God's saying, it's not a day, it's a decision. He will use you now. He'll use you today. It's, it's, it's a decision, not just a day. And so when I look at Jeremiah, God was saying, either you're going to be obedient or disobedient. Either you're going to step in or you're going to step back or you're going to step out. But God's calling us to step forward. Jonah chapter four, it's, (laughs) I was looking at this again. Jonah knew the Assyrians. This was a people group and they were brutal to their enemies. The Assyrians uh, in this future, they were going to attack Israel. They deserve God's judgment. And he knew God and he knew that God was merciful even to his enemies, even to the people that Jonah didn't like. Oh, come on, I'm going somewhere. Stay with me. For God would be forgiving to undeserving, repentant sinners, even the brutal Assyrians. Let me just tell you what God wants to work out in your heart is that God will anoint and appoint and bless people that you don't even like. 
And you'll be saying all these things about how you don't like them in your own heart. You'll be saying, it doesn't make sense. They're not even that talented. They can't even sing that good. They can't even preach that good. What is the favor on their life? Because you don't understand the depths of God's mercy. And what happens is like, I believe as we see Asbury College, and this is a very significant prophetic sermon today. As we see Asbury College and Lee University and revival is now beginning to spread, it is going to be a, a oh, I know I'm preparing you up at a time. It is going to become a rebuke to many of us who have said, God, you can use those people, but you can't use the Assyrians. When revival starts happening in Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches, when revival starts happening in white churches, when revival starts happening in black churches, there's going to be people that manifest the spirit of Jonah that says, God, I knew you were going to be merciful and it frustrates me that you would even do it through them. Oh, come on. I know I'm speaking something right now. There's this spirit of Jonah that the Lord was like, deal with it because it's a self-pity. Jonah chapter four, verse one. Sure enough, just as Jonah feared, the Assyrians repented and God relented. Jonah got so angry that he actually wanted to die. So now listen to Jonah chapter four, verse three. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now think about this. Jonah shows up to the Ninevites, who are modern-day Assyrians. He shows up to this region. He delivers this word about repentance. God is going to destroy all of you unless you repent. They respond with extreme repentance. We are not going to eat. We're going to fast. Not even our animals are going to eat. We're going to do whatever it takes to provoke the God of these ancient Israelites, these Hebrew people, that he would actually not destroy us. So think about that. It's, it's like God is doing something amazing. This revival is breaking out. When you look at Asbury College, how many critics of revival? They're not doing it right. They're not doing it the way we would do it. It's not this, it's not that. Whenever God begins to do things, it will provoke the spirit of Jonah in people who say they don't know what they're doing. And I do not want to pastor a group of critics. I want to pastor a group of cheerleaders who say, come on, keep on repenting, keep on believing. Keep on praying. Keep on doing it. You may not do it like we do it, but God moves in mysterious ways. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Self-pity will keep you at home when a revival is happening outside. Self-pity will have you at home when a revival is happening outside. This is what I tried to for, forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from, send, uh, from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He sounds just like Jeremiah chapter 20. It's like self-pity will cause you to want to die 
die instead of break through. It'll literally cause you to end your ministry to stay out of the misery. There's something about the spirit of suicide. Suicide isn't just killing your body. It's killing your dreams. It's killing your gifting. It's saying, oh, I got hurt at that last church. And so God couldn't possibly use this church because I'm not going to give my gift because of the expectation that was broken before. Don't think that suicide is always a noose. Sometimes suicide is actually you killing a desire, killing a dream, killing an expectation. And there's more dead expectations than dead people. There, Come on, somebody. And, and so I'm trying to help you understand that people are interacting with V1 Church every single Sunday, but something inside of them, that spirit of Jonah says, I can't step forward because I did it before and I was pushed backwards. See, okay, now the Lord take away my life, he says, but the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Okay, let's go deeper. The root of self-pity is always anger and pride. The root of self-pity is always anger and pride. Okay, how deep do I have permission to go, V1 Church? When I was younger, I thought I deserved more than I earned. I thought that I deserved more than I earned. When I was younger, I, I say I would look at what other people built. I would look at what other people accomplished and I would make a ton of excuses about why it was easier than it would be for me. And I blocked my own next level because I didn't have the wisdom to understand that it is impossible to do the things that I saw them do had it not been for an extreme dedication, devotion, and sacrifice. And when I stopped making excuses and started making moves, then empathy and compassion was birthed in my heart. And guess what? And I've told this story many, many times. Some of the same ministers that I used to look at and criticize have now reached out to me all these years later and say, will you coach me? Will you mentor me? And I thought they had it all together, not realizing that it wasn't the absence of pain. It was a different pain in their life. I had the pain of fatherlessness, but they had the pain of their father, their earthly father's expectations who handed them the ministry. So it's not, okay, wake up somebody. It's not the absence of pain in people's lives. It's a different pain. And while you're feeling sorry for yourself and you're looking at everybody else like they have a life better than yours, you are actually eliminating your visibility of their pain. You can't someone see someone else's pain when you're obsessed with your own pain. And so you'll, you'll miss your moment and the Lord will bring you to somebody who's in pain. But see, I, I heard a nurse once tell me that the acronym for pain is pay attention inside now, pain, pay attention inside now. And when we're feeling pain, it becomes a blinder to us. I'll tell you this, when I fell down the stairs the night before the conference and I rolled down 15 stairs and it knocked the wind out of me, I could not pay attention to my eight-year-old. I could not pay attention to my 16-year-old because the greater the level of pain, the more the restriction of visibility. Oh, I'm, I'm preaching to somebody the greater the level of pain, the more it, it, it decreases. You get tunnel vision as the pain increases. Matter of fact, this stance right here becomes impossible when you're in pain. Pain always makes you smaller. Oh, I'm telling so. Oh, 
What if your what if pain has caused you to take a posture that's smaller than the stance that God has for you? Pain is decreasing you. Pain is causing you to fold when God says it's time to stand and you've got to get out of the posture of pain and you've got to stand tall in the courage that God's given you to do what he's called you to do. But self-pity is causing you to take a posture different than what God has for you. Stand up in this season. Stand up and declare it boldly. Here's why we do it, though, because I'm looking at Jonah chapter 4, verse 3 and onward in context. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? See, the Lord is asking some of you right now, is it right for you to be angry? The answer is no. (laughs) Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the day. He was so mad that God destroyed a plant that was covering him. And some people, some listen, some Christians love plants more than they love people. Some of y'all love dogs more than you love God's creation in humanity. Some, oh, I know I'm talking to somebody. Some of you are a bigger, a bigger fan of cats than you are at Christians. Oh, I know I'm going there. Oh, I love cats. I love dogs. And the, the Lord's like, why don't you love the people I died for too? But, but okay, I'm going to give you some revelation about Jonah that I've never heard anyone preach because I was looking into this and I'm like, God, give me an insight prophetically. What are you trying to say? And I, this is extra biblical. I can't prove what I'm about to tell you, but based on the psychology that I've learned as a leader over all the years, I think that Jonah had been traumatized many times in his life before his Nineveh assignment. I'm going to tell you why I think that. Because human beings, we crave the familiar more than the unexpected, even if the familiar is chaos. Oh, I'm speaking into something. We desire repeatable patterns because our brain is wired in such a way that consistency and familiarity bring more peace than chaos. That's why if you want to destroy the psyche of a human being, throw them in a hole and, and, and with no windows so they can't tell the difference between day or night. And once you remove the pattern, you will actually break their brain. That's solitary confinement. The worst punishment you can give somebody is the absence of a pattern. So for Jonah to go preach revival and repentance, and then everybody actually accepts it, and then he goes before God, oh, I feel the anointing all over me right now, and he actually says, God, I can't believe that you would just go ahead and destroy me. He was seeking a repeatable pattern of the familiarity of trauma. I can't believe that it could be this good that my church could love me that much that Eddie and Jocelyn could actually care about me that Mike and Julie could really be the real deal that worship could be that power. I can't believe this is all real. Let me just go ahead and sabotage it. Because the sabotage becomes the familiarity because everything else in my life messed up. So when V1 Church doesn't mess up, let me mess it up. And I rebuke the spirit of Jonah off of this sustainable revival. 
You don't have permission to bring your familiarity into the unfamiliar revival that's happening in our midst. You don't have permission to traumatize what God's using to heal trauma. You don't have permission to mess up what God is putting in order. Oh, come on, somebody. There are so many people. We prefer the familiar to the good. Oh, I know I'm speaking. It was like Jonah was like, God, I want you to destroy them because destruction's familiar to me. And that is a repeatable familiarity. And so what happens is we have powerful prophets like Jeremiah in the church. We have powerful anointed people like Jonah that can preach the word, but their self-pity is blocking the revival because they would prefer familiar to what's good. Even if it hurts, it makes sense because hurt is our normal and we have survived hurt before. So we'll repeat the hurt because we repeat a process that feels familiar. Some of us, oh, come on. Your car is always dirty. It'd be weird for it to be clean. And it always goes back to dirty because that familiarity brings more comfort than clean. Some of you just got a revelation. And men, that's why you're also still single. Clean your car. <laughs> All of us, sometimes I remember, guys, I'm being vulnerable with you to get this word out. We're about to close in a few. I remember when I first knocked on Julie, or Julie Owens' front door. She was 19 years old and I was coming to pick her up for a date. There was this yellow two-story house with a white picket fence. Julie came from the, the good neighborhood. I was from the other side of the tracks. You know, we, we actually, our little house was down the street from the projects. We weren't in the projects, but we were literally four houses from the projects. Uh, the, where I was at in Northwest Indiana, South Chicago, um, all the people paid 10 and $11 a month to live in the projects. That's where I'm from. And we lived right on that block. And so I remember driving uh, to the other side of town and I get to Julie's house, this two-story yellow house, white picket fence, and I knock on the door her parents both answered the door. I was like, wow, two people answering the door. This is insane, right? And you know, and her dad's wearing like one of those sweater vests with like a collar coming out of it, you know? And the mom's got all the makeup done. I'm like, oh, come on in. And uh, they were like, come to the sitting, the sitting living room. And I was like, what in the heck? So I go into this and they have two living rooms. They have a nice living room and then they have another living room. And I'm like, we don't have any living room. <laughs> And so I remember feeling so uncomfortable because where I was from, everything was dilapidated. Everything was dirty. What I didn't have wisdom to see is that the familiarity of brokenness was a pattern that I was trying to repeat, even though God was trying to elevate me up to wholeness. And so what happened was I, cr I criticized Julie's parents for years. I, matter of fact, they had towels in the bathroom that you weren't supposed to wipe your hands on because they were for decoration. And I wiped my hands on them 100% of the time. I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because I'm from the hood. I'm from the hood. <laughs> Straight up. I'd be like, Pfft. I'm just kidding. But here's what it was. God was trying to elevate me, but I was blocking the blessing because where I was raised and how I was raised, that was never God's design for normal. 
That's the normal that's created by divorce. That's the normal that's created by dysfunction. That's the normal that's created by destruction. What I didn't know is that my father-in-law, Randy Owens, was also raised in extreme poverty, but he, and he had every reason to get divorced, but he decided to stay. What I realized is that Randy Owens actually went through all the stuff I went through, but he made a righteous decision to go to work every day, and he built that home from nothing. And see, what was happening was God was bringing me to an environment where he could elevate me, but I criticized it. Oh, come on, somebody, because it wasn't familiar to me. And it was okay to have decorative towels if you're working 50 hours a week. It's okay to actually buy a house with the white picket fence. It's okay because death and destruction and divorce and brokenness should not be normal. But sometimes you leave the ghetto, but the ghetto's inside of you. Sometimes you come on somebody and God's trying to take you, but you won't even be friends with people that you don't perceive have the same brokenness as you, even though God placed them in your life to elevate you. And it wasn't until the last years of Randy's death. Today is the fifth year anniversary of his death. But it wasn't until the last years of his death that I looked him in the eyes and I said, I had you all wrong. Me and you were the same person, but you made better choices than me. Would you teach me? Would you raise me up? And he became a father to me. But then guess what? In his last years, I became a revivalist to him and we joined together. And we begin to minister together. And he would send me prophetic words about this church and help me get this church to the next level. And, and then guess what? I, I ended up buying a yellow house with a white picket fence in New York City. You can't make it up. But I was blocking my blessing because pain and misery will always thwart your ministry. And God's trying to open up your heart because you'll see your spouse as an enemy when actually they're supposed to fight alongside of you. You'll see the people in the pews of this church as, a, as an enemy when God has called them to fight alongside of, your, uh, 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 alongside of you. I wanna close with this. If I let myself feel hope and I'm wrong, my hopes are shattered. This is the line that many of you are saying in the spiritual realm. If I let myself feel hope and I'm wrong, my hopes are shattered. So it's better for me to break things than allow the circumstance to break me. Self-pity turns into self-destruction. And the Lord is telling me to tell you in love, it's okay to let yourself feel hope because there's two kinds of hope. There's human hope and then there's divine hope. There's a hope from the Father. There's a hope from heaven. There's a hope that says, no, this is not hype. This is not an emotion. This is not even a feeling. This is a spiritual impartation. And I will not allow your self-pity to become self-destruction. I'm gonna use white people. I'm gonna use Hispanic people. I'm gonna use black people. I'm gonna use Haitian people, Puerto Rican people. I'm gonna use hillbillies that talk like this. I'm gonna use all, I'm gonna bring people into your life that you would have sabotaged that relationship, but now you're going to embrace it. But here's the fake out is that you now have eyes to see their pain because your pain stopped producing tunnel vision when you chose not to go the direction of self-pity. And then you're going to heal each other. You're going to heal each other. And that's the strength of this relationship. Come on across every campus. Would you just stand to your feet right now as we get ready to take this next step. Many of you, okay, Pastor Mike, you diagnosed the problem. 
very well. You help me see that I've got pride in some areas. You help me see that I got some self-destruction. But Pastor Mike, what do I do? What is the solution? The Bible gives one solution. It's called gratitude. I'm going to read some scriptures right now like a battering ram against self-pity. And I will tell you this. If you begin to see in the spiritual realm, God has exceedingly abundantly more than you can think, ask or imagine, plan for you. If you could see, in the matter of fact, if you could see in the spiritual realm, God wants to elevate you to a place that you will actually have pity for other people because you will look at them and say, you're materially wealthy, but you do not have the riches of heaven. And you may have a nicer car, but I pity you because I'm free and whom the sun sets free is free indeed. You might have a bigger house, but I have a bigger home because a home isn't bricks and mortar. A home is where the presence of the Lord abides. And so you're going to actually switch self-pity. See, when Jesus looked at the cross, he was dying, but he said, I'm about to inherit the entire world. Heaven is my home. I'm about to be seated at the right hand of the father. So Father, forgive them because I know I have your approval. Woo! Gratitude. Okay, let this be a battering ram. Just close your eyes to remove distractions because I'm going to break something off of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 says, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I'm calling forth a revival of thanksgiving. I hear people around the world saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. It was all for my benefit. James chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, be thankful in all circumstances. Somebody say all circumstances. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. It says, be thankful. Many of you say, I don't know the will of God for my life. Uh, yes, you do. I rebuke that. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, the will of God is that you would be thankful in all circumstance. You never have to wonder if you're in the will of God, if you're thankful in every situation. Oh, come on, somebody. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Continue to live in him. Strengthen in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. That's the, God, I thank you that my earthly father wasn't there because it drove me to you. I thank you that that other church rejected me because I learned to be embraced by the people you called me to. I'm thankful, God. You see, oh, it says overflowing with thankfulness. The overflow of your life should be thankfulness. And then it says in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah got it right one time. He said, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I vowed 
I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I hear the Lord telling many people in this season, your sacrifice will be thankfulness. Your sacrifice will be saying thank you, God, when you don't feel like you have anything to be thankful for. Your sacrifice in this season, many of you have learned how to give money, but you've never given thankfulness. Many of you have learned how to serve on dream teams, but you never learned how to serve through the overflow of thankfulness. Many of you, got God said, I'm taking you deeper, and what it looks like is a sacrifice of thankfulness. God, I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to hit somebody right now with this anointing. God, I'm thankful for my body. I don't want to be taller. I don't, come on somebody. I don't want, I'm thankful for my skin color. I'm thankful for where I came from. Okay, here's another one. The Bible says, obey your mother and father. Honor them. I'm thankful for my parents. I'm thankful that I came from them. I don't know why, but you were working something out by bringing me through that lineage. God, I'm thankful. Some of you haven't been thankful for your job and the Lord's calling you to a place of overflow. God, I don't know why I'm in that office. I don't know why I'm in that hospital, but God, I'm thankful. This is going to be a revival of, oh, come on, of thankfulness because when thankfulness is released, the Lord says you will be released to your next level. When, when you begin to release thankfulness, the Lord says, I will release you to your next level. When you are thankful for the thing that you couldn't be thankful for, I will release you from that thing. I will promote you from that thing. But you must, come on, begin to move into the area of thankfulness, 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 thankfulness. Across every campus, let's take 30 seconds See, what happened is hands all over this auditorium started going up, and that's the opposite posture of pain. Thankfulness, when I started saying thankfulness, you started unraveling the pain, and you started releasing that next level. And so I want to take 30 seconds right now across this entire uh, church all around the world. We're going to just say thank you, God, and you guys get it out of your own belly. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for every pain, every scar. God, we thank you for every rejection. God, we thank you in all things. We thank you, God. We thank you, God. I thank you for my brain, for my brain. I thank you, God, for my heart. I thank you, God, for my bank account. I thank you, God, for my life. I thank you for my spouse. I thank you for my children. I thank you, God. I, I'm breaking through with thankfulness. I am, I am breaking through with thankfulness, God. Come on, just 10 more seconds. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for everything that came before. Thank you, God, that I'm not too old. I'm not too young. I'm right on time. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Come on, just five more seconds. Let's release a well of thankfulness. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I thank you for New York and all the difficulties of New York because it made us stronger. I thank you for Indiana and all the difficulties of Indiana. I thank you for California. God, we thank you for the barriers because the barriers became the blessing when we became thankful, Father. Lord, I pray over this entire church before we get ready to sing this out, God, that they would move forward in freedom. God, that they would let other people off the hook, God, and that they would move in a freedom like never before. In Jesus' mighty name, come on, let's just begin to sing.